Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com Have you ever wondered why some marketing just seems to be able to say all the right things and get all the clients? You're going to love our episode today. We're talking to Caitlin Burgoyne about customers. Why do they buy? The jobs to be done. All the things you need to be considering as you put together marketing to attract your ideal client. You're going to love it. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Caitlin Burgoyne, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have her on the program today. Welcome, Caitlin. Ah, thank you for having me, Wendy. Oh my gosh. So Caitlin, we're going to talk about so many things today. And as usual, I kind of start out with how you got to where you are today. And your story, I think, is so interesting. And so uh, it's really a story about perseverance and resilience. Because you started out having a marketing agency. That's right. And then you went into tech. So tell me more. How did you do that? So to make a long story you know, not as long, <laughs> um, started my first business at 25. I started a freelance marketing company. Um, within a couple of years, I grew that hired some folks to help me out. We were, I think a team of eight when we decided to launch our sister company, which was a restaurant consulting business. Okay. And so we did the marketing stuff. We brought in different partners to do the other pieces, you know, food and beverage directors, interior designers, that sort of thing. Um, that company did well, ended up selling that within two years. So then I'm sitting at the marketing company. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I was interested in shifting away from running a service-based business to selling a product. And at the time I thought, well, how hard could it be to sell a tech company? A tech product like you know how hard could that be as it turns out extremely hard <laughs> very hard um and so we but we went at it and we were you know we were able to raise venture capital funding i got a co-founder we were making waves in the media forbes was calling the platform the next linkedin for women and if you were watching from the outside it looked like everything was going along very well. From the inside, it did not feel like that at all. It felt like one fire after another, after another. And we were just making, we were struggling to, we were getting users very quickly into the platform, but we were struggling to keep those users. We hadn't built the right solution and we didn't have enough money to, for our grandiose plans. And after about four years and a ton of heartache, I made the really hard decision to shut down that company. And shutting down the company wasn't just me deciding that I was going to, you know, move on and do something else. It was me deciding that I was going to have to go personally bankrupt <laughs> because I had taken on a lot of personally guaranteed loans in the beginning while we were trying to raise capital. I had lived on credit cards when I decided to shut down my agency so I could focus full time on the tech company. So all the revenue that I had coming in through the agency that had been funding the tech development went away and I 
but I just made the commitment to go all in. And so that was hard. And I had to tell friends and family who had believed in us and invested in us that they weren't going to get their returns. And in fact, they were, their money was gone. So that was really hard. And I should have probably taken a bunch of time off and tried to heal and all of that. Cause like my anxiety level at that time was through the roof, but knowing that I had no source of income and not feeling as though I was in the mental space <laughs> to be able to work for anybody else. Cause I was just right. so burned out. I went back to what I know, which is I went back to consulting and I was doing some, you know, marketing consulting with companies that I'd met through my journey. We were really good at the marketing stuff. We weren't good right. at the product stuff. And our lead investor ended up coming to me and saying, hey, like we've got all these companies that are building these amazing products and are not great at getting people to discover them. Can you help? Can you work with some of our companies? And I was like, are you going to pay me? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. Let's do this. <laughs> Small so, detail, I need some money. <laughs> yeah. So I started working with all of these amazing companies, many of whom had been far more successful at fundraising than we had been, you know, raising tens of millions of dollars, having incredible teams, building really phenomenal technology. Um, and I would go and sit down at the boardroom table surrounded by their brilliant leaders. And I'd ask them the question marketers need to know, which is tell me about your customers. And it was very surprising to me how often I couldn't get a good answer to that question. Mm. So either there was, you know, disagreement on the team about who the priority priority was like one person might say, you know, are, we're really going after these folks and somebody might go, yeah, yeah. But like, also this, this audience really matters to us. And the other thing I get was really vague answers with a lot of confidence. So people would say, our like, you know, ideal customer profile or ICP are companies that sell on the internet with anywhere between 10 and 500 employees. And then like they would stop and I would wait and I'd go, and like, that's everybody. What do you mean? That's, that's not an ideal customer profile. That is, you just described aside from enterprise and like very small micro businesses, you, everyone in between is your customer. <laughs> like, and so it was clear to me from my own journey with building the wrong product. Cause we didn't understand our, our customers well enough to seeing this challenge with a lot of product teams that were building good products, but couldn't get the right audience for them and couldn't attract people because their messaging was off that there really needed to be more of a focus on understanding who the customer were. And so that became kind of my priority. And that was, what was that? 2017 was when I decided this is where I'm going to focus. 2018, uh, no, to the 2000, end of 2018 launched uh, my training company. And then from there, we've moved mostly into doing training. We do some research. We had done some done for you research, but primarily our focus is very much on the training side of the business. That's so interesting. I, you had me at confidently vague, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I think that uh, there's so much to unpack there. One of the things uh, from when we've talked before, you talked about when you did 200 interviews that gave you nothing basically, yeah. or like, so what happened there, Caitlin? So when you're, you know, as somebody who is an entrepreneur, but hadn't been part of the tech community, there's this way of building a tech company and there's, you know, there's kind of some dogmatic stuff around how it's done. And one of the things that I discovered in growing this tech company, things I had not done in my other entrepreneurial ventures was that you have to do customer discovery. 
And the idea of customer discovery is you go out and you learn about your customers and you use what you learn to make sure you're building the right thing. You're supposed to be validating that the market wants what you're building. And while the concept of customer discovery is one that I wholeheartedly 100% believe in today, after my own experience with it as an early stage founder, I was a total skeptic. So we went out and we did customer discovery, but nobody told us how to do it. And so what did I do? I thought about who do I think would be a, like, you know, the best type of user for our new platform. We were building at the time a skill swapping marketplace for women specifically. And so I was like, I want to go talk to women entrepreneurs and understand what they think about our idea. And so, you know, I'd get on a call with somebody like yourself and I would spend the first 10 minutes explaining you why we were creating it and why it was going to be awesome. And then I'd say, what do you think? And then kind and generous people like you would go, that sounds amazing. And, and like, have you thought of this? And like, I love that idea. And like, mostly we would get this, this really affirming feedback, mm. but the mistake that I was making was, well, there's countless, but what I know now was that the, the goal of customer discovery should never be to just say, here's my thing. What do you think? Because mm. you won't learn a lot that way because people don't people won't give you honest answers and not because they're trying to mislead you, but we're really bad at thinking about hypothetically what we might do in the future or anticipating the way that we're going to behave. Yet we're very confident when we give our answers. And so the way that you should do customer discovery, which I now know isn't to go out and put something in front of somebody and say, what do you think? Would you pay for this thing? How much would you pay for it? Like it's to talk to people who are ideally already using a solution to solve the problem that you solve, understanding everything that led them through their journey to discovering that mm -hmm. thing and why they chose it, what maybe they tried before that. It could be a competitive product. It could be, you know, hiring an intern to do the work for them. It could be doing nothing because they were so overwhelmed. And yeah. you want to understand all the things that led them to choose that solution and ultimately like what job they're trying to get done. And so the mistake that so many people make when they're in the kind of like earliest stages of bringing something new to market is again, they talk to people who they think are their ideal customers. They don't talk to people who are actually putting their hands up and saying either, yes, I've, I've made an investment in solving this problem, or yes, I'm actively looking to solve this problem. And I can share with you, not my opinions, but I can give you the story of what I've tried, what's worked and what hasn't. And that's the big difference. And so we did these 300 interviews and I would proudly talk, you know, when I was doing investor pitches, I'd talk about that. I'd be like, we've talked to 300 women and like, you know, everybody wants this thing. And the reality was that again, like we, those, I wouldn't say that those were a mistake because they certainly allowed us to craft really strong messaging. That messaging got lots of people to sign up. It created lots of hype, um, but it didn't help us build the right solution because we were so focused on, not like we were so focused on like getting feedback on our idea that we weren't truly understanding what problem we were even trying to solve. Like where, what was the friction? What was the anxiety people were dealing with? Like, how could we make sure that we were a better solution for a specific type of person than what they'd tried before? And so, yeah, we got a lot of um, congratulatory <laughs> like, you know, affirmations that didn't pan out to us actually knowing how to create the right thing. That's interesting. It almost, and it feels like, so the track for building your marketing and the track for building your product aren't necessarily the same. 
They may, they can be, well, I mean, it's all about context, right? Okay. So once you actually have a thing out in the world, well, then you want to do user research, user research, like, you know, like oftentimes called customer research as well, but like the focus is different. Now you can actually watch them using your thing. Now they can, they'll ask you for changes. They'll say like, you know, could you do this? Or could you add this feature? Wouldn't it be nice if, and now you can dig in and try to understand their workflows and kind of like what's happening in their lives, where your product fits into it. Like that style of research is another kind of like, it's a discipline this, but this um, tool of doing an interview to understand the buying journey and then also understand now that they're using your product, what's their experience like, you can get the same insights out of one interview, but the kind of usually what ends up happening is that you have marketers or people that are focused on growth, thinking about the marketing journey. And you have the product team and people who are focused on understanding users and customer success focused on the um, usage journey. And where those two things intersect, that's a huge opportunity. Like that is one journey for a person. But oftentimes you'll see that the style of conversation, the type of research being done will look different depending on, yeah, what the, what the desired outcome is from the research. Yeah, that's interesting. Fascinating. And I know that the jobs to be done um, discipline, I mean, uh, I feel like you spoiled me forever for just making things up. Like it has to be grounded in this stuff. But you had, there was this guy, a professor at Harvard, he just passed away, Clay Christensen, yes? That's right. Can you just real quickly tell us the milkshake story? Sure. I think that so clearly um, illustrates what you're talking about. I would love to. And what I would say to your listeners too, in the show notes, maybe we'll add a link to the video yeah. because I'm definitely not going to do it justice. Like when Clay tells a story, you are on the edge of your seat. There's a four minute video. You can find it on YouTube. If you search for milkshake marketing jobs to be done, or what is the job of a milkshake, you'll find it. But to kind of backtrack a little bit. So Clayton Christensen is, um, was a Harvard business professor and worked for decades in the field of innovation. And he was considered to be the world's foremost expert. You know, IBM's CEOs, like they were going to him to try to figure out like, how do we innovate? Clay, can you help us? And Clay and a mentor that I'm incredibly lucky to have, um, Bob Moesta and a number of other folks started trying to really unpack this idea of like, why is it that we see these, you know, brilliant teams launch things that are wild successes and then other things that are flops. You know, it's the same company, the same smart people working on it. Like, why is it some things succeed and other things fail? And they spent decades trying to answer that question. And what Clay says in this video so eloquently is he says, you know, this focus on understanding more and more about the customers on the correlating factors, like, you know, things like their demographics, their psychographics, their firmographics, which as marketers used to be like our, you know, life force. We'd get so excited about your persona. So to speak. Exactly. We get so excited about that stuff. He's like, but that's actually taking teams in the wrong direction because what you really want to focus on is less the person, although the person is, the person is very valuable, but what you really want to understand is what job are they trying to get done? And when you think about jobs to be done, it's really a theory for understanding what drives demand. And a job, which is a term that is not always familiar to people, the idea is people are trying to make progress in their life and they're in a particular circumstance. And because they're trying to make progress and something is stopping them from moving forward, 
they will essentially hire a product or a service to help them get the job done. And like when we hire somebody inside of our company to work with us, we have particular criteria, right? There are specific things we're trying to achieve and there are specific problems we're trying to overcome. There are specific goals that we have in mind. And so when you want to understand how to innovate more successfully, or as a marketer, how to market more successfully, it's not just about studying the person, it's more about studying the job they're trying to get done. And so in Clay's video, he talks about, well, what's the job of a milkshake? And if you watch the video, you'll notice that it's in a lecture hall at Harvard and all the students are sitting with these kind of like old iMac computers. And I think that it's probably from the early 2000s. So that, you know, it's not a particularly new video and that's relevant for a reason which I'll share, but like he talks about um, a big fast food company, which I know to be McDonald's, wanted to sell more milkshakes. And so they did what you typically do when you think about market research. You know, they went out and they asked people what they wanted in a milkshake, just like I've done when I was doing my research for Vendeep. What do you want? You know, if we if we did this or this, would you want more of it? And so they made the changes that people were asking for and people didn't buy more milkshakes and they were confused. And so what happened was Bob Moesta um, with Clay's, you know, with, with Clay's team as well, but Bob particularly went in to a McDonald's and he just stood there in the, in, all day and he watched and he said, who's coming in and who's buying milkshakes? And he would just take very careful data and he wouldn't interrupt the people at the, you know, in day one, but he'd make note of what was happening, what time, what else did they buy, that sort of thing. And what he noticed by the end of day one is that like a good portion of people were coming in and buying a milkshake before 8 a.m. in the morning, which was a huge surprise. Not at all. And they were not buying anything else. It was the only thing that they were buying. And then they were walking off and getting in their car and driving away. And so the next day, Bob stood outside. And as the people came out with their milkshake, he stopped them and he asked them to tell them his buying, their buying story. And what he could put together, Bob is an amazing um, interviewer. He's studied how interrogative uh, investigators do interviews and he's just incredible at it. Um, not, again, I've been so lucky to learn from him. Uh, what he discovered was that all of these people that were buying these morning milkshakes had the same job to do. And that was, they had this long, boring drive to work and they weren't super hungry, but they wanted something to keep them interested and kind of like make, bring them a little bit of joy in the morning. And so they had this cup holder in their car. They had one hand on their milkshake, one hand on the wheel. And this, they had this long drive that they had to get through and having that milkshake, it would last for the full drive. It would be something that would kind of like stick in their stomach. So they weren't grumbling by lunchtime and compared to other solutions, they tried to get the job done. It did a better job. You know, they, people had said, well, usually, you know, if I didn't get the milkshake, what else might I get? Like I might get a banana, but it's gone really fast. Like I might get a bagel, but it's hard to eat in the car because you're like, you know, trying to put jam on it when it's on your knees and you're driving. And it's just like, you know, it's a kind of a two-handed thing. You know, I've had a Snickers bar before, but I felt really guilty about that because you shouldn't be having Snickers bars in the morning <laughs> and the milkshake works well. And here's why. And so what's so interesting about that video is after that video, it was not long after that McDonald's made a real, like, you know, strong move into breakfast. They had not had a full breakfast menu prior to that. And really what is a chocolate frappuccino, if not a morning acceptable milkshake, right? <laughs> That's what it is. But what Clay shares again, so beautifully is that when you really understand the job, somebody's trying to get done, the fact that the McDonald's 
cups had these really thin, narrow straws, it would just make the milkshake last forever. You'd have to right. you know, take so much time sucking it up. And because of the consistency of it, it didn't melt and become really liquidy right away. It kind of kept that good consistency. So for that particular job of keep me satisfied, entertained, happy on this long, boring drive, it was the best solution. And once you realize that, then you can design, you know, other solutions that might be better ones that don't make you feel as guilty as having a milkshake, like a frappuccino, stick some coffee in it. And now you've got a morning drink. Your business is making a profit. You're growing, but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry. You're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. I, I love that story because it does highlight how um, you, thinking things through doesn't help. So you, mm-hmm. you in the green room, you talked about clarity comes from engagement. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What it means is that while we, there are lots of people out there and I, there, there's, we want to believe that the way that we get clear on something is by, you know, having conversations with our internal team and figuring it out, right? Mm-hmm. And that feels really good. Like when you go into the boardroom with a problem and you come out with an amazing solution and you feel really victorious, there's, there's a real feeling of like, you know, excitement, and enthusiasm there. But the reality is where clarity really comes from is engaging your audience and seeing and putting stuff in front of them and seeing what they're resonating to. And yeah. then, you know, it's, uh, I think it was Rory Sutherland that said it, but I've, I'm definitely stealing this phrase because it's just so smart. He says, marketing isn't about not being wrong or marketing isn't about always being right. It's about being less wrong because that's it, right? Like you're most of the time, we're not going to be hundred percent right, but you can be less wrong. And the more you're less wrong, you know, the mm-hmm. clearer it becomes what's working. And what I love about jobs to be done is it just gives you a different framework to think about what, what it is that success actually looks like for your customers. So for me in my business, the, you know, at the, at a high level, the job that we help people do is we help them to understand why their customers buy so they can market smarter. That's the job, right? right? And one of the ways that we do that is through teaching them different research techniques so that mm-hmm. they can use research to understand the customers. But the other thing that we do which became kind of the forefront of all of our content marketing is we help them to understand buyer psychology, right? Because it gets one thing to understand your specific buyers and what's motivating them. But on a broader level as human beings, there are things that are happening in our brain that if you understand them can help you to create more effective marketing campaigns, right? Like if you understand how scarcity works or why we're more motivated not to lose than we are to gain, or why um, when we're given something, we're more likely to return the favor what's known as reciprocity, right? Like when you understand those things, it's also going to help you to market smarter. So for me, I was like trying to figure out like, well, what's our beachhead content going to be? 
is it going to be about research? It's like, no, because I want to sell people our research methods, right? Like I want, like we put a lot of effort in developing these systems that work. And like, I don't want to necessarily give all of that away. Although we give away, like, you know, we give lots of stuff away, but like, what can I teach people that will also help them get that job done of understanding why people buy so they can market smarter. And then that became the topic of our newsletter. We have the why we buy newsletter. And then that newsletter has just like, you know, taken off because it's answering that question for marketers, which is like, I want to understand why our customers buy. I want to be able to make campaigns that are more successful. And so some people might say it doesn't necessarily make sense that a research company is also creating all of their content on buyer psychology. Shouldn't we do it all on research? But it's like, no, like that's, we're not a research company. We're a company that helps you to understand why your customers buy so you can market smarter. And if in the future, there's something that isn't research that actually helps us to achieve that better, like brain scans or <laughs> like, you know, some incredible AI tool that actually works, although most of them are not very good um, at processing, like, you know, words like um, natural language processing and things like that, like, then we'll help people discover that stuff, right? Because like, we're not a research company, we're a company that helps you to understand your buyers so you can market smarter. I love that. Um, that whole process, of understanding your buyers. It's, it, it, you know, what's coming up for me a little bit is, is as an, if we go back up to the entrepreneur level as company owners, I think some of us have lost sight of the job, why the job to be done by the company, right? Mm -hmm. Because the job to be done by the company, not only is it to help clients and whatever it is, but it's also to help you as the entrepreneur build your perfect life. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets lost in the uh, shuffle somewhere. So uh, thank you. I love that you bring that up because like, I was thinking just the other day, like when I was building my tech company, it's funny the way that the tech world is. It's very, the the right word might be like predatory, (laughs) like because so many of these big tech companies are venture funded and then eventually go public. And now for now they're shareholder like led, like the focus is on growing something massive, right? and unicorn exactly you know like if you want to fit in the venture model you need to be able to be able to develop like you need to be able to show that you have the potential to have a massive return and at when i was building that like venture company like the words a lifestyle business were almost like dirty words Mm. it was like saying you wanted to do something small and now with you know some distance from that world I want to build a lifestyle business. I want to build a business that I can do something I love, that I know that I have financial security. I don't need to have the biggest house. I don't need to have the, you know, the the new car. That stuff isn't what matters to me at all. Like I'm not really big into status symbols so much, but what I do want is to have confidence. Like you said, that I'm building an asset that's going to provide for my family and that I can take care. Cause for me, when I don't have that, like when I was in Vendive and like our, like, you know, I knew that on the other side of the door was bankruptcy and having to let down all of my investors, like I was not in a good mental state. And since then I've been so careful to not let myself go down that same road again, where I'm chasing growth at the expense of my mental health, because without your mental health, you can't grow your business. So, so true. And I don't think that having ambition to grow your business doesn't mean you can't have a life, but I think you have to be considered in how you do it. Totally. Because obviously 
if you can, if you can build a business that's bigger than you, that means that you have more freedom. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that I think is interesting, and I heard this quote and I can't remember who said it, but like somebody had shared like, you know, your brain, because I think about the brain all the time and how, and how we make decisions. And that's just so much of the content that we do in customer camp. And I think, and I heard this quote, it's like, you know, your brain isn't designed to make you happy. It was designed to keep you safe. And so the thing is, I think we chase like things or status symbols, thinking that they will make us happy because we're trying to get to this place where we're going to be happy. But if really what you are seeking, if what your brain wants is security and and safety, and that comes from having people that, you know, your tribe of people where you can feel secure, it comes from having you know, a safety net where you know that it's not necessarily all dangling out on the line and it could all fall apart at any minute. Like, and I think that the work that you do with so many people helping them to, to build their wealth, that's that safety piece. Right. And like, once you feel like you are safe, then you can be happier. Right. I think, but we spend so much time not feeling safe and, and the media in many cases Mm -hmm. has moved us into, we need to be at this level of happiness of where mm-hmm. we encouraged to be a certain way mm-hmm. when other needs maybe haven't been met yet. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. There's this FOMO, right. And market and the, the, the stuff that we teach and why we buy, like one of the things I talk about is like, you know, use this for good because there's lots of people that are manipulating our emotions intentionally. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating for me, cause I do read your newsletter is how much of this stuff that you talk about buyers, uh, why they buy it's actually also almost directly applicable over to into the world of finance and um, building your oh, 100%, one of those yeah, 100%. Pieces, yeah. um, um, somebody that your listeners or that you in particular might be interested in is Melina Palmer I think I was telling Casey about her but she used to work at um, the credit union in the U.S. and mm-hmm. like a lot and she's a behavioral economist and with a background in marketing and so much of the work they did um, was around trying to help people to make better financial decisions yep. because if oftentimes making a decision, that's a good decision for the future, isn't the most appealing decision right now. And so you have to really understand how people make decisions. If you're going to encourage them to do things that are going to be good for them long-term when right now it's not their biggest concern. <laughs> it's not urgent till it's urgent, Caitlin. Yeah. Um, when you look back over, like, it seems like, so you're now into training, helping mm-hmm. others learn how to do the customer research. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you've got this newsletter with, I think you said 8,400 subscribers. Yeah. Is that a byproduct? Sorry? Is that a byproduct of- Well, I mean, we started it because we wanted, you know, as a marketer, you want to be able to grow your email list, create value for them. And- get them to see what you're teaching them as an extension of what you sell, right? Like, you know, it's, there's this whole laddering up to your offer because if we, if I can attract people who care about understanding buyer psychology, they clearly care about understanding their customers. So to take those people from, you know, understanding how people in general buy Mm -hmm. to let me help you discover how your people buy and why they buy your product or products like yours, that's a natural next step. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense from a content perspective 
for us to create that content. But what's ended up surprising me, which you and I were talking about a bit in the green screen is like, I then as just recently started getting approached by brands, brands that I've been following and I'm a huge fan of, and just like, you know, software companies, another training company that like is world-class at what they do. Like I'm, I like am in awe of, of what they've created. Um, and they approached us and they said like, we want to sponsor the newsletter. Because what they recognize is that again, like we've built this audience of smart marketers who want to figure out how to do things smarter and that, that audience trusts us. And so aligning their brand with, with our audience makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense for, for me, because like, there's some things that we're going to do in partnership that's going to create so much value for the why we buy readers. So it's just like this win, 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 you know, it's a win for me because I get more funding to be able to kind of ramp up the why we buy media side of the business. It's a win for the sponsors because they get access to this audience that is really like, just like the, some of the best people, like the smartest people. Yeah. And then my audience, like we're going to be able to do way more for them for free now that I've got this, these sponsorships. So like, there's things that we're going to be able to bring to them. I couldn't have done on my own. So it's a, uh, it's an exciting time, but yeah, it wasn't a plan. There was like, I had never, like, I actually just tweeted a thread today, which I'm hoping some people are seeing because I worked on it for way too long, <laughs> but it was about like, I never thought I was a creator. I didn't see myself as a creator, like the term creator or influencer or thought leader, like these terms kind of make me roll my eyes, like, <laughs> but I inadvertently created a, a media company and that's cool. It really, really is. And I think it shows that when you do good work and you look after your customers, it doesn't mean you always know where you're going to end up. Mm -hmm. It yeah. just kind of, but being open and aware of, oh, wow, this might be a good road to go down because it helps serve my mission. Mm -hmm. Then it can really, uh, op being open to these things, I think is important. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, when you look back over the last, you know, number of years uh, from Vendive through to your company now, and um, what would you say is your biggest lesson that you learned mm -hmm. along the way that is different than say the customer focus, like just about running a business? I think what I've learned along the, I think the biggest lesson is that the company will only be as healthy as I am. And so if I neglect my mental health, if I neglect exercise, if I'm not filling up my own cup with relationships and spending time with people I love, then it starts to bleed into the business and the business doesn't do well. And I, I have at times been, you know, I've, I've allowed my stress to become really um, in, like debilitating. And I become kind of like, you know, very much like obsessed with getting the work done and like I can become singularly minded. And so I, I'm now in retrospect, and I'm 11 years in, you know, I've been running business for 11 years and it, I really would say this is still very much a struggle for me mm -hmm. to, to do it well. Um, and I'm, it's very much a work in progress, but like the healthier I am in all respects, um, yeah. the better chance I have of being a good leader. And one thing I learned to myself doing Vendive is I don't want to take extraordinary financial risks. <laughs> like That's not good for my mental health. And maybe there's other people out there that can compartmentalize and can know, you know, know that they are taking on a lot of debt or know that they are, have these huge investor expectations and yet 
and that fuels them. And like, I'm, I know some of those people and I'm so proud to call them friends and, and I admire them. That's not me. Like I, I perform good when I have like, you know, security, when I have some, you know, I can see the next couple of steps ahead and I know that I'm, I'm not going to fall through a hole in the ground. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I love it. What it feels like you're saying is, is that you, as a business owner, you need to be healthy and that's a number of things, but you also need to know where your boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And that, that can probably go back to the healthy piece as well. And then how much risk you're prepared to take. And I feel like when you get into certain areas like tech, they are certainly, it's a, an ecosystem that encourages big moves mm-hmm. that may have pushed you beyond your boundaries without you even realizing you were already on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say that that's absolutely true. Yeah. And you know, no disrespect to the tech community. I mean, I, again, like I have friends who are building incredible companies. They have, it, I'm inspired by the work they're doing. They're such good leaders. Their teams are so happy and yeah. they're getting the financial rewards, you know, like they're, they're, they're living their dreams financially. And I'm so proud of them. And maybe in the future, uh, you know, again, like a healthier Caitlin that can like design the right boundaries. Maybe I would pursue doing a big kind of scary thing like that again. Um, but for me, security. Yeah. 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 Uh, Caitlin, how do people get a hold of you? The best way to get in touch with me is definitely on Twitter, super active over there. You can also um, follow me on LinkedIn, although I'm less active there. I'm a big believer of kind of going deep in one place versus trying to be everywhere. Um, so Twitter, I'm at Kate Bohr, K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. And from there, you can check out, you know, the customer camp website. You can see our Why We Buy newsletters of sign up is in my Twitter bio. Um, and I'd say get on the Why We Buy list if you're curious about understanding your own customers and why they buy i'm learning every week and it's so cool like and so i'm learning and i'm teaching you so i save you from doing hours and hours of research and you can get everything i learned in just three minutes right get on there well thank you so much caitlin um the real bottom line is know your customers that's right (laughs) thank you for listening to the real bottom line This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.